0: This is a recording of There Is No Beauty That We Should Desire Him by Lauren Spendlove, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by the author. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org. Abstract In two separate passages, Isaiah appears to describe the mortal Messiah as lacking in physical beauty, and perhaps as even having some type of physical disfigurement. On the contrary, Joseph, David, Esther, and Judith, portrayed in the biblical text as physical saviors or deliverers of Israel, are represented as beautiful in form and appearance. In fact, their beauty seems to be a significant factor in the successful exercise of their power as physical saviors of Israel. Unlike Joseph, David, Esther, and Judith, Christ may have been foreordained to descend to his mortal state with less than an attractive physical appearance, and is someone who experienced illness throughout his life, so that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Introduction Following his initial rejection by the people of King Noah, after the space of two years, Abinadi came among them in disguise, that they knew him not, and began again to prophesy among them. During this second period of preaching, Abinadi cited many of the words of Isaiah, including, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and rejected. Although Isaiah's man of sorrows is not plainly identified in the Masoretic text, Abinadi clarified that he was God himself, who shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. This passage, as rendered in the Book of Mormon and in the KJV translation of the Bible, informs us that Christ would appear bodily deficient in three ways. He would lack form, Comeliness, hadar, and beauty, mare, contributing to his rejection by the people of Israel. While the KJV correctly translates toad as form, it would be more accurate to render hadar as splendor or majesty, and mare as appearance. The modern New American Standard Bible of 2020 provides a more accurate translation of this passage from Isaiah. Quote, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we had no regard for him. However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore, and our pains that he carried, yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. Quote. David Penchansky expressed that the Hebrew word for form, toar, refers to the body, while appearance, mare, refers to the face. So there was nothing about Christ's physical form, his outward bearing, nor his facial appearance that would physically draw the people of Israel to him. In addition, Isaiah adds that Christ would be burdened with pains and sicknesses, By way of allegory, just as Abinadi came among the people of Noah in disguise, it is possible that Christ also came among the people of Israel in disguise, without the trappings of an attractive bodily form, without adornment or majesty, and without any facial attractiveness that would entice the Israelites to follow him. In Isaiah 52, we are given another description of the future Christ using two of the Hebrew words found above, toar, form, and mare, appearance. Quote, Just as many were appalled at you, my people, so his appearance was marred beyond that of a man, and his form beyond the sons of mankind. quote. The noun mishchat, often translated as marred in the passage from Isaiah, is only used in one other biblical verse, part of a section detailing the physical requirements for sacrificial animals, where the word connotes some type of physical disfigurement or deformity, rendering the animal ritually unfit for sacrifice. Quote, nor shall you offer any of these animals taken from the hand of a foreigner as the food of your God, for their deformity mishchat, is in them, and they have an impairment mum. They will not be accepted for you. End quote. Isaiah 52:14 informs us that Christ would be marred mishchat, that he would be deformed, blemished, or disfigured in appearance mare, and in form toad. Drawing a comparison with Leviticus 22.25, this physical deformity, blemish or disfigurement could have disqualified him in the eyes of the people as the promised Messiah. While some students of the Bible may understand 52.14 as a reference to the physical effects of Christ's scourging by the Romans or of his crucifixion, it is just as likely a reference to his lack of physical beauty resulting from some type of physical defect during his mortal life. In his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Following his reading of a text from Isaiah, he explained to those present, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. He then added, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Why did Jesus cite this proverb to the people? Was this a public admission of a personal illness or physical deformity? While we cannot be sure of the source of this proverb, it is possible that it was a popular aphorism derived from a passage from the book of Sirach. Quote, My son, in thy sickness be not negligent, but pray unto the Lord, and he will make thee whole. Then give place to the physician, for the Lord hath created him. Let him not go from thee, for thou hast need of him. End quote. The proverb that Jesus cited raises the possibility that he had a lingering and observable physical illness or deformity. Perhaps members of the synagogue had publicly expressed confusion over Jesus' healing of others while he himself appeared to be neglecting his own physical weakness. This apparent paradox may have seemed hypocritical or even deceitful to them. Later, during his crucifixion, the chief priests, scribes, and elders mocked Christ. He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. Perhaps members of the Nazareth synagogue were thinking something similar. He healed others, himself he cannot heal. If he be the king of Israel, let him now heal himself, and we will believe him. In this paper, I principally focus on two of the Hebrew nouns that Isaiah uses to describe Christ, the suffering servant, as lacking, toad and Mare. I also explain how these two words are used to positively describe and identify six saviors of Israel, or mothers of saviors in the scriptures. I also argue that sickness and possibly deformity were a lifelong aspect of Christ's mortal state and were important aspects of his messianic mission. Moses, Pattern of a Beautiful Savior or Deliverer The birth of Moses is briefly described in the Hebrew Bible as follows, And the woman conceived and gave birth to a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. The phrase translated as that he was beautiful is literally that he was good in Hebrew. In the Greek Septuagint translation of Exodus, the Hebrew word tov was rendered asteos. This Greek word is used only twice in the New Testament, both with reference to the birth of Moses, and generally rendered as beautiful or fair in English translations. Quote, at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful to God he was nurtured for 3 months in his father's home" end quote. and the second passage quote, "by faith Moses when he was born was hidden for 3 months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict" end quote. Presumably based on this passage from Exodus two, much folklore developed around the physical appearance of the young Moses. Philo, a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher from Alexandria who lived during the lifetime of Jesus, wrote, quote, and when the king's daughter saw that Moses was more perfect than could have been expected at his age, and when from his appearance she conceived greater good will than ever towards him, she adopted him as her son. In the Antiquities of the Jews, Flavius Josephus, a first-century Jewish historian, added, God did also give Moses that tallness when he was but three years old, as was wonderful. And as for his beauty, there was nobody so unpolite as when they saw Moses, they were not greatly surprised at the beauty of his countenance. Nay, it happened frequently that those that met him as he was carried along the road were obliged to turn again upon seeing the child, that they left what they were about and stood still a great while to look on him, for the beauty of the child was so remarkable and natural to him on many accounts that it detained the spectators and made them stay longer to look upon him. Both Philo and Josephus portray the young Moses as an exemplary specimen of beauty and childhood perfection. Also, given that Moses is depicted as an ideal prototype of a deliverer of Israel in both the Bible and the Book of Mormon, these representations of beauty and physical perfection seem fitting. In his seminal work, Legends of the Jews, Louis Ginsberg wrote that when the daughter of Pharaoh found the Ark of Moses among the reeds and opened it, her amazement was great. She beheld an exquisitely beautiful boy, for God had fashioned the Hebrew babe's body with peculiar care. Ginsberg added, his royal foster-mother caressed and kissed him constantly, and on account of his extraordinary beauty, she would not permit him ever to quit the palace. End quote. Joan Taylor explained, quote, The portrayal of Moses as handsome in ancient biographies and other accounts correlates with widespread expectations in antiquity that a royal ruler should be good-looking. Since the scriptural record of the physical appearance of Moses is scant, my sole purpose in discussing his perceived beauty is to help us identify a standard or model by which the ancients likely judged their leaders and rulers. To be a leader, and especially a deliverer, a person needed to be perceived as possessing physical beauty. Even today, multiple studies have shown that physically attractive people are more likely to be perceived as good leaders. The use of toad and mare in the bible as previously explained the nouns toad and mare are best translated into english as form and appearance respectively especially when describing individuals in the biblical record while mare is used frequently in the bible one hundred and three times toad is mentioned only fifteen times When used to describe people, these nouns are generally coupled with an adjective like beautiful, good, bad, etc. In most biblical passages, one but not both of these nouns is used when describing a person's physical appearance. See Appendix 1 for a complete list. For example, in Genesis 12.11, Sarai, Abram's wife, is depicted as a fair woman to look upon, Isha yefat mareh. More accurately, a woman of beautiful appearance, but toad is not used to describe her. Conversely, Abigail is described as being of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance, vifat toad. More precisely, she is described as having a beautiful form. In describing her, the author of 1 Samuel used the noun toad, but not mare. This usage of one word, but not the other, is the most commonly used pattern when describing the physical appearance of individuals in the Bible, except for specific individuals that will be discussed in the following sections. Saviors of Israel, both Toar and Mareh As with the description of the future Christ in Isaiah 52.14 and 53.2, in some special cases both Toad and Mare are used to describe the physical appearance of other biblical figures. In this section I consider four specific individuals, Joseph, David, Esther, and Judith. What these four individuals have in common is their identification as saviors or deliverers of Israel. And like the suffering servant in Isaiah 52.14 and 53.2, their physical appearances are all described using the nouns toar and mare. However, unlike the suffering servant, they are all depicted as having a beautiful form and appearance. In Genesis 39.6, we are told that Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. A better translation would be Joseph was of beautiful form and of beautiful appearance. In addition to being described as physically beautiful, Joseph is identified as a physical savior of the house of Israel and of the Egyptians. In fact, as early as the fourth century CE, Joseph was described by Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, as a mirror of purity and characterized as a type figure of Christ. Christian Heel added that in early Syriac Christianity, Joseph was seen first and foremost as a type of Christ. As with Joseph, David is described by the author of 1 Samuel as physically attractive. In 1 Samuel 16.18, we are told that David was a comely person, Ishtoad. Ishtoad literally means a man of form, but perhaps more fittingly, a well-formed man, in chapter 17, the author described David as being of a fair countenance, im mare. This later phrase is better rendered with a beautiful appearance. So like Joseph, David is characterized as both pleasing of form and appearance. And like Joseph, David is also identified as a type of Christ, a savior of Israel. Quote, Ahitopel was David's counselor and he is said to be a type of Judas and David a type of Christ. End quote. "James Hamilton added that Joseph functioned as a type of David and that David functioned as a type of Jesus the Messiah. Esther who replaced Vashti as the new queen of King Ahasuerus is described as fair and beautiful. Vefator vetovat mare However, a more accurate translation from the Hebrew would be beautiful of form and of good appearance. Like Joseph and David, Esther is depicted as having a beautiful form and appearance, and she also has been identified as a deliverer of her people. Clayton Fawcett expressed that both Esther and Mordecai depict Christ in his atoning and future messianic role. Their tandem role for the salvation of their people is displayed when Mordecai is noted donning sackcloth and ashes, while Esther instead dons royal robes. Similarly, Hamilton noted messianic comparisons between the stories of Esther and Joseph. Like Joseph, Esther is virtually a slave in a foreign land. Like Joseph, she is described as being handsome in form and appearance. Like Joseph, she is cleaned up and presented to the king. Like Joseph, she finds favor in the king's sight. The wording of her resolution is reminiscent of Israel's words, and like Joseph, she makes requests of the king that benefit yea, deliver the Jewish people from wicked opposition. End quote. Regarding the eponymous book of Judith, the Jewish encyclopedia states, quote, As most students of the book have recognized, it was originally written in Hebrew. The standard Greek version bears the unmistakable marks of translation from this language. One of these unmistakable marks of translation from Hebrew can be seen in the depiction of Judas' physical beauty. She was also of goodly countenance and very beautiful to behold. Since the extant text is in Greek, I provide an interlinear Greek-English translation below with footnotes from Thayer's Greek lexicon. Like Joseph, David, and Esther, Judith was both of good form and of beautiful appearance. Additionally, she is strongly identified as a savior of Israel. Robin Branch wrote that Judas' beheading of Holofernes, the invading Assyrian general, in his own tent, with his own sword, and surrounded by his own heretofore victorious army no less, marks her as a political savior in Israel on par with David. In fact, Andrea Schaefer characterized David as the archetype for Judith. Quote, The praise David and Judith receive for their heroic actions of liberating Israel from a formidable enemy seals the evidence that David is an archetype for the Judith story. In 1 Samuel 18.6, the women of Israel come out to meet David with dancing and with timbrels and with rejoicing and with cymbals. Reminiscent of David's celebration, all the women of Israel run together to see Judith. They dance and bless her, and Judith leads the women in a song of praise to the Lord, also with timbrels and cymbals. Here we have validation that Judith has fully entered the realm of warrior, receiving the same victor's welcome as David, and their celebrated accomplishments are identical. End quote. Unlike the book of Esther, which is included in the Hebrew Bible, The book of Judith, although numbered among the books of the Greek Septuagint, was not accepted into the later Jewish canon, the Masoretic Text. Beauty as Power in the Bible Influenced by Greek thought, our modern civilization is able to experience and describe the world in abstract ways. But to ancient Hebrews, the world was conceptualized through a concrete rather than an abstract framework. Greek thought teaches us to interpret the world with our minds while ancient Hebrew thought or concrete thought relied on the five senses to understand the world and its environs james falconer explained unlike the noun in English or Greek the action of the Hebrew noun is active dynamic visible and palpable Because nouns represent things, whether material things or emotional or conceptual ones, such as feelings, this is also true of the difference between how Hebrews and Greeks perceive things. In Hebrew thinking, things are always visible and palpable. For us, perhaps the most important category of things are the abstract things, such as ideas and concepts, that we use to manipulate the particular entities we deal with every day. But such things are not only not active, they are also neither visible nor palpable. For us, the world is the enactment of something static, pre-given, and abstract, whether a platonic realm or the formulae of physicists. But for the Hebrew mind, the world is itself physical activity. Activity in a physical body is the most fundamental category of Hebrew thought. End quote. Since the ancient Hebrew mind conceived of reality in concrete rather than abstract ways, one could say that in the Hebrew Bible, physical beauty represents power, or perhaps more properly, physical beauty begets power. David Penchansky explained, The Hebrew words translated as beauty do not carry the same meaning as the English word. Although some overlap exists, they are not the same. Western philosophers regard beauty as one of the transcendentals, along with truth and goodness. In the Hebrew Bible, yafe and other corresponding words are more geared to physical appearance. Although the Western tradition tends to disparage the physical appearance, in the Hebrew Bible, a character described as beautiful has power." As demonstrated in the preceding section, these four physical saviors of Israel, Joseph, David, Esther, and Judith, were all described as beautiful of form and appearance. In other words, they were portrayed as ideally beautiful. In fact, this ideal beauty factored significantly into all four of these saviors' success. In the case of Joseph, the text in Genesis appears to create a causal relationship between his physical beauty and his pursuit by Potiphar's wife. Quote, and Joseph was a goodly person, yefe toar, and well favored, vife mare. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, "Lie with me." End quote. Regarding Potiphar's wife, Ginsburg wrote. Quote, like Rachel, his mother, Joseph was of ravishing beauty, and the wife of his master was filled with invincible passion for him." End quote. However, scorned by Joseph, Potiphar's wife lied about the substance of the story, resulting in Joseph's imprisonment. What appeared to be an unjust and unfortunate outcome at the time actually laid the foundation for Joseph's salvific mission of preserving the entire house of Israel from destruction through starvation. In 1 Samuel 16.17, we are told that King Saul was looking for a musician to join his court. One of Saul's servants reported that David was cunning in playing and a mighty valiant man, and a man of war and prudent in matters, and a comely person, Ishtoar, and the Lord is with him. From this list of attributes, we can gather that David's physical attractiveness was a factor in obtaining his position at court. Later, we are told that David's beautiful face, his appearance, was one of the elements that caused Goliath to underestimate him. In fact, David's physical beauty assisted in the metaphorical disarming of Goliath. Quote, and when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of fair countenance, mare, actually beautiful appearance. This disdain for David's youth and beauty led to Goliath's demise, resulting in the Israelites' victory over the invading Philistine army. Esther, for her part, won the equivalent of an ancient beauty contest that resulted in her being crowned as the new queen, placing her in a position to save Israel from Haman's plan of destruction. When Esther realized and accepted that she had come to the kingdom for such a time as this, she prepared herself, and trusting in the beauty that the Lord had bestowed upon her, she bravely put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house. Esther's courageous act led to the unraveling of Haman's murderous plot and to the physical salvation of her people. Like David before, Esther saved her people from a formidable enemy. Just as Esther's beauty gained her access to the Persian court, Judith relied on her physical beauty to gain access to the camp of the Assyrians, who had laid siege to the city of Bethulia. As with David, Judith's beauty served as a powerful weapon in metaphorically disarming her enemy. Like David's beheading of Goliath, Judith's beheading of Holofernes led to the flight and rout of the Assyrian army by the Israelites. As a second David, Judas' beauty laid the groundwork for saving the house of Israel from imminent danger and potential annihilation. Mothers of Saviors In addition to the four saviors of Israel discussed above, only one other person is described in the Bible as both beautiful of Toar and Mare, Rachel, the mother of Joseph. In contrast with her sister Leah in Genesis 29:17 we are told that Rachel was beautiful and well favored. Yefat toar vifat mare. More precisely Rachel is described as having a beautiful form and appearance. In fact Joseph is descended from a line of attractive women. Sarah is described as Yefat mareh or beautiful of appearance, while Rebecca is portrayed a little less favorably as Tovat mareh or of good appearance. It is only Rachel who is described as both beautiful of form and appearance. Perhaps this is appropriate as the mother of one of the most important physical saviors of Israel and as a significant matriarch in the house of Israel. Even though Rachel only gave birth to two of the twelve sons of Israel, Jeremiah seems to acknowledge her as the matriarch of the entire house of Israel. Quote, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are not. End quote. In this passage, it is not Leah who weeps, although she mothered six of the sons of Jacob, including Judah, or even Leah and Rachel together. Rather, Rachel, the acknowledged matriarch of the house of Israel, weeps alone. Like Esther and Judith, Rachel had a beautiful form and a beautiful appearance. As the mother of Joseph, a physical savior of Israel and the recipient of the birthright, and as the matriarch of the house of Israel, Rachel is portrayed as a paragon of physical beauty. Because we are dealing in stereotypes, whether Rachel actually was a model of beauty during her lifetime, or whether we would pronounce the same judgment today, misses the point. Any discussion of Rachel's beauty must be conducted through the worldview of an ancient Hebrew reader and not from our modern mindset. Rachel's reported beauty was the source of her power, specifically power over her sister Leah, which she was able to pass on to her sons and especially to Joseph. Paralleling the beauty of Esther, Judith, and Rachel is one more woman of extreme importance in the scriptures, Mary the mother of Christ. Luke tells us that she was highly favored, which can carry the connotation of charming or lovely, but she is not depicted as beautiful anywhere in the Bible. Nephi, on the other hand, describes Mary as a virgin most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. Nephi's description parallels that used to depict Esther in the KJV, beautiful and fair. From our prior study of Esther, we know that she was described as being of attractive form and appearance. Interestingly, Joe Carruthers informs us that Catholic tradition embraces Esther as a prototype of Mary. Cruthers added, quote, the late 15th century carol by James Ryman speaks of a Hester so fair of face as benign maid, mother, and wife, reflecting a traditional reading of Esther as a type of Mary in her representation of womanhood in all its acceptable guises, end quote. With the Book of Mormon's propensity to closely correspond with KJV English, it is reasonable to conclude that Nephi saw Mary, as Rachel, Esther, and Judith before her, as both beautiful of Toar, form, and beautiful of Mare, appearance. In fact, as the mother of the Savior of the world, this description seems both appropriate and even expected. In his article, Nephi and his Asherah, Daniel Peterson makes a compelling argument for connecting the tree of life in Nephi's vision with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Nephi describes the tree of life as exceeding of all beauty, and Mary is most beautiful and fair. In addition, both the tree and Mary are described as white, which seems to imply purity. Likewise, Lehi describes the fruit of the tree as white to exceed all the whiteness that I had ever seen, but neither Lehi nor Nephi describe the fruit as beautiful or visually attractive. These connections can help us visualize the tree of life as a representation of Mary and its fruit as a stand-in for Jesus. Jesus, Lacking a Beautiful toad and Mare While physical beauty appears to have factored significantly into the success of the four saviors of Israel discussed above, curiously, the same cannot be said of the true savior of Israel, Christ. Although it seems paradoxical, Christ's lack of physical beauty seems to have played a significant role in his success as the spiritual savior of the world. If Christ had come with a beautiful form, Toad, and a beautiful appearance, Mareh, Perhaps his mission of spiritual redemption may have failed. Unlike the four physical saviors of Israel discussed in this paper, Joseph, David, Esther, and Judith, Christ's redemptive mission was principally spiritual in nature. He had to fail physically. He needed to be rejected as a physical liberator, deliverer of the house of Israel, in order to succeed in his spiritual mission of redemption from sin. Christ's physical and spiritual rejection, resulting in his crucifixion and resurrection, were necessary and inevitable. While the stories of Joseph, David, Esther, and Judith are centered around physical salvation, Christ's mission was focused on spiritual salvation. Not only was Christ the exception to this pattern of beautiful saviors of Israel, he appears to be its very antithesis. Penchansky commented, The opposite of attraction is repulsion. Attraction is primal and immediate, not a result of cognition or considered judgment. Its opposite is equally strong and deep-seated. Aside from Leah, there are few references to unattractiveness or ugliness in the Bible. In 2nd Isaiah, there is one. The servant of Yahweh had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, and is one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised. The appearance of the servant of Yahweh revolts people and drives them away. This response is precognitive, a visceral reaction to sensory stimuli. It runs very deep. End quote. However, the Bible teaches us that our ways are not God's ways and that God's judgments are not flawed like ours. While our human tendency is to ascribe undue power and influence to those who are physically beautiful, God's judgments are not based on outward appearance. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear. Isaiah 11.3 But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God does not see as man sees, since man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16.7 The Gospels record several occasions on which the resurrected Christ appeared to his disciples but was not recognized by them. Even though they were intimately familiar with his physical appearance, the disciples were still unable to identify Jesus in his resurrected state. The first of these events involved Mary Magdalene on the morning of the resurrection. Distressed that the body of Jesus was missing from the tomb, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and yet she did not know that it was Jesus. According to Luke, on that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Finally, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. How is it that those most familiar with the mortal Jesus were unable to recognize his physical appearance when he appeared to them as a resurrected being? One obvious answer is that Christ's resurrected body was most likely vastly different in form and appearance from his mortal body. As Paul wrote, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Our mortal bodies begin their earthly journeys as seeds, sown in corruption, dishonor, and weakness. That is, defects, deficiencies, and imperfections are embedded in our genetic code even before the seed is germinated. However, in the resurrection, these deficiencies are removed and reversed. As one who took upon him our infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, Jesus could not have been an exception to this genetic order. Given these points, was Christ's lack of physical beauty merely a circumstance of birth, or was it somehow integral to the eternal plan of salvation? Taylor asserted, But if Jesus was not good-looking, and perhaps quite the opposite, this could have been used to make an important theological point, also on the basis of a biblical model. Given that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world, why not show that his body did not fit the standard expectation of a king either? In the writings of the prophet Isaiah, the figure identified as the suffering servant of God is not handsome. As the King James Version has it, he has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him to be king. End quote. As Taylor noted, Jesus is an atypical king. His kingdom is not of this world. His ways and judgments are not of this world. And even his physical appearance did not seem to fit the worldly demands for a kingly messiah. As the new Moses or the new David, Jesus did not seem to fit the part. Taylor added that although New Testament authors quote extensively from Isaiah 53, they all averted any reference to the physical description of Christ given by Isaiah in verse 2. But the Gospel writers do not note the lack of Jesus' comeliness either. This is all the stranger because this passage about the suffering servant is much used in the New Testament to explain the terrible end of Jesus' earthly life. John 12.38 and Romans 10.16 cite Isaiah 53.1 Who has believed our message? Matthew 8.17 has Jesus cite Isaiah 53.4 he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Acts 8.32 and Romans 10.16 Have Jesus taken as a lamb to the slaughter. In first Peter 2.24 we learn that by his whip stripes you were healed. Isaiah 53.5 and first peter two twenty two he committed no sin isaiah fifty three nine mark fifteen twenty eight and luke twenty two thirty seven cite that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors isaiah fifty three twelve In none of these is the crucial verse of fifty three two concerning the servant's unfortunate physical appearance, considered to be a description of Jesus in the flesh. End quote. This avoidance of isaiah fifty three two by New Testament writers seems intentional. After all, what could these writers really say on the matter? What benefit would be derived from acknowledging that Jesus was less than attractive, or perhaps even homely? Would pointing out any physical defects help the gospel cause? Early church fathers, however, were not as reluctant to broach the subject. Quote, "...while third-century Christian scholars like Origen thought Jesus beautiful, Tertullian thought of him as a worm." Many of the writers of the Christian church in the late second onwards used the suffering servant portrayal in Isaiah 53, a passage that included mention of the servant's lack of beauty, as a positive attribute of Jesus. They argued that it explained many things about him, including his ignominious death. End quote. Finally, Taylor postulated what Jesus' mortal body may have looked like. Quote, Nowhere in the Gospels do we have mention of anything about what Jesus looked like in terms of his facial features, hair, tallness, or physical characteristics. The most likely reason for this is that he was average in every way, and there was nothing distinctive about his appearance that it made it worthy of comment. We have therefore explored what we can know of averages at the time of Jesus, largely from excavated bones, and determined then that he would have been about 166 centimeters or 5 feet 5 inches tall, with olive brown skin, brown-black hair, and brown eyes. He was a man of Middle Eastern appearance whose ethnicity can be compared to Iraqi Jews of today, ministering unto the people in power. The physical beauty of the four deliverers of Israel that we have discussed in this paper seems to be closely linked with their saving power. Although the same cannot be said of Christ, Nephi tells us that even without physical beauty, Jesus ministered with power to the people. Quote, and I beheld that he went forth ministering unto the people in power and great glory. And the multitudes were gathered together to hear him. And I beheld that they cast him out from among them. End quote. Even though Jesus ministered in power and great glory, he was still rejected of men. But if power was linked to physical beauty in the ancient Hebrew world, as seems to be the case with the other four saviors of Israel, what was the source of Christ's power, if not beauty? Lehi told his rebellious sons, Laman and Lemuel, that they were guilty of murmuring against Nephi. Quote, Ye say that he hath used sharpness, ye say that he hath been angry with you, but behold his sharpness was the sharpness of the power of the word of God which was in him, and that which he call anger was the truth according to that which is in God, which he could not constrain, manifesting boldly concerning your iniquities, quote. Nephi's sharpness that provided a reason for Laman and Lemuel to take offense was the power of the word of God which was in him. This same power of the word of God was also in Christ, but this was not his only source of power. Four times in First Nephi we are told of the power of the Lamb, implying that power was wholly integrated into the person and mission of Christ. Additionally, Nephi the son of Helaman informed us that Christ hath power given unto him from the Father. Just as Nephi's brothers were offended by his preaching, Christ was destined to become a stone of stumbling and a rock for offense to both the houses of Israel. Nephi added, for the things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and soul, others set it not, and trample under their feet. Yea, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words. They do set him at naught, and hearken not to the voice of his counsels." End quote. Already put off by his lack of physical beauty, considering him to be a thing of naught, The addition of the power of the word of God that was in Christ led those in power among the Jews to take offense and to reject him completely. It seems that the Jews were not only offended by Christ's lack of beautiful appearance, but also by the sharpness of the power of the word of God, causing them to reject both the man and the message. Conclusion While Isaiah appears to describe the future Christ as lacking in physical attractiveness, The opposite is true of the four physical saviors of Israel discussed here, Joseph, David, Esther, and Judith. Concerning David and Judith, Andrea Schaefer observed, One of the earliest facts we learn about David and Judith is that they are both beautiful, a detail that is sometimes thought to denote divine favor. In 1 Samuel 16.12, David's first appearance in the biblical text The initial detail given is that David is ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. This is immediately followed by God's command to Samuel, Rise and anoint David, for he is good. Later, in 1 Samuel 17.42, when Goliath first sees David, he disdains him because he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Likewise, in her introduction, Judith is described as shapely and beautiful, and shortly after the narrator tells us that she is not only beautiful, he adds that no one spoke ill of her because she feared God greatly. Later, when Holofernes first sees Judith, we learn that he and his attendants were all struck by her beautiful face. This juxtaposition between David's handsomeness and his anointing and Judith's beauty followed by the mention of her piety are indicators that for the authors of these texts beauty denotes divine favor." End quote. David and Judith, as well as Joseph and Esther, are depicted in the Bible as beautiful and divinely favored saviors of Israel. The power of all four of these physical deliverers is narratively linked with their physical beauty. As with these deliverers of Israel, Rachel and Mary, the mothers of Joseph and Jesus, are similarly described as beautiful in form and in appearance. On the other hand, the mortal Messiah appears to deviate significantly from this observed arrangement. Unlike many modern portrayals of Jesus as a strong and handsome man, it is likely that the mortal Jesus was less than attractive or even homely in appearance. He also may have been sickly or deformed in some way. Concerning the mortal Jesus, Alma wrote, And he shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled which saith, He will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people, and he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which binds his people, and he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Alma explained that Christ would suffer pains, afflictions, and temptations, that the word might be fulfilled which saith, He will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. This passage from Alma is a clear paraphrase of Isaiah 53.4. It was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. In addition, Alma's word choice, he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions, implies that Jesus enjoyed less than robust physical health, perhaps even being sickly, throughout his mortal life. From these passages, we can understand that during his whole life, not just while in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus likely was plagued with illness, infirmity, and perhaps even deformity, but not without purpose, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Christ knew what it was like to suffer repeated or protracted illness, to not stand out as the most attractive person in the room, and to even be rejected by his peers. With bowels filled with mercy, he knows how to succor his people according to their infirmities, because he has experienced the same. Given a physical body beset with illness, lack of beauty, and perhaps even deformity, the mortal Messiah was scorned and rejected by the house of Israel. But although his physical body was sown in corruption, Christ's resurrected body was raised in incorruption. The most handsome of the sons of mankind. Psalm 45.2 As a possible allegory, the prophet Jeremiah was told to arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. While there, Jeremiah observed the potter making a vessel, but the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. The root of the verb used in this passage and translated as was marred is shin The noun mishchat in Isaiah 52.14 used to describe the marred body of Christ is derived from the same Hebrew root. It is possible that the original vessel made of clay by Jeremiah's potter represented the flawed, mortal body of Christ, while the second vessel typified his perfected, resurrected body. Jeremiah added, quote, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in mine hand, O house of Israel. End quote. Just as the first vessel was flawed in the hand of the potter, more properly in the hand of the creator, the potter or creator reworked the clay and formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. As members of the house of Israel, a twofold lesson emerges from this story. 1. As with Christ, the potter or creator will remake our marred mortal bodies into perfected immortal bodies. 2. Christ, both the potter and the clay in this metaphor, is also able to remake us into unmarred and unflawed spiritual vessels, if we are willing to repent, willing to return ye now everyone from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. Jeremiah 18.11 Unfortunately, the inhabitants of Jerusalem responded to Jeremiah's plea for repentance in a less than positive way. Quote, It's hopeless. For we are going to follow our own plans, and each of us will persist in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Quote. Paul, supplying a better answer, said that having stripped off the old self with its evil practices, we need to put on the new self which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. It is through Christ our potter that we can become reworked vessels both physically and spiritually. Because Christ has descended below all things, he also comprehended all things. In Christ and his atonement, it's not hopeless. This has been a recording of There is No Beauty That We Should Desire Him by Lauren Spendlove, originally published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, volume 53, 2022, read by the author.